Um, so thank you for joining us. Um, I feel so honored to have your unmistakable voice, Tyler, on pull request. Um, it, it just feels incredible that I've managed to turn the tables on podcasting's best interviewer. Thank you for the kind words. Much appreciated. Um, I think um, I've got Pedro here separately trying to get, I think, Daniel online. Is Daniel's going to join us, right, Tyler? Correct. He's planning on it, and uh, I confirmed this with him about two hours ago. But Daniel is occasionally late. Okay. Um, I'm curious what that means in your talent rubric, Tyler. <laughs> it means he has very high opportunity cost. <laughs> I see. Okay. Um, you know, it's funny because let's just go ahead. And if Daniel joins us, sure. uh, he'll, he'll join us. Um, it's funny because the, the first, so we're talking about your book, Talent, which I think is coming out, I think today or tomorrow. It's literally this week, right, Tyler? Comes out today. Absolutely. Today. Great. Okay, so, yes. Great. So everyone, everyone should go and buy it. I, I'm staring at the, um, at the galley version with all the little print marks on it. Um, and it's funny, your relationship with Daniel is important because you actually, A, you dedicate the book uh, to finding each other, which I'm not sure if it refers to your co-author or just all of us collectively finding each other. But then you open the chapter discussing how it is that you met Daniel. It's interesting because obviously I know you through podcasting and we've I think sat next to each other at dinner before. And then I know Daniel from like the early YC days. I remember Daniel. Now that he's not here, we can talk about him. Sure. I, remember Dan, I think the last time that I, I was physically next to Daniel, I, you know, the guy is like 12, as you know, and or obviously he's older than that. But at the time, he was underage, I think, when we were in YC. And I, I remember he used to sneak into 21st Amendment Bar, which is this bar close to where a lot of startups are. And he would just kind of sneak in. I think that's the last time I actually physically met him. Um, and so, you know, you and he, you and him are obviously very different ages, different generations, different worlds. So why don't you tell us how this book happened and how you kind of put your heads together for this book? Daniel and I first met at a dinner in San Francisco and it was a private room, but I think he was a little late arriving and he couldn't sit at the main table, if I recall. So he was sitting a bit in the corner, listening very intently. But I noticed, although he didn't speak up that much when he spoke up, uh, everyone else in the room listened very carefully. So I started thinking, you know, who is this guy? And there seemed to be an intentness to his manner. So he and I approached each other after the event, started chatting. Uh, we got to know each other. And at some point we were just having a, a lunch, the two of us in San Francisco. And we both converged on this idea. We should write a book on talent because we both work with it all day long. And we spent several years on it. And uh, again, today's publication day. I don't think Daniel and I are so different. We're different ages. But we're both obsessive. Uh, I'm not Daniel's Israeli of American parents. I'm not Jewish, but I more or less grew up in Jewish northeastern New York culture. Uh, I feel very comfortable talking to Daniel. Not that we're from different universes. Hey, Daniel, welcome to the show. Hey, sorry, uh, I'm late. I, you know, I got all set up uh, with my uh, Zoom background, and then uh, I realized that. <laughs> being invited uh, to uh, a better uh, a better technology and so uh yeah i'm uh, happy to be here thanks for having me no thanks and we're, we're going to talk about zoom backgrounds because i'm i'm incredibly neurotic and sort of self-conscious in my zoom background and you get into it and i actually tweeted some screenshots of it uh, yesterday and I, and I think it's it's an interesting it's an interesting comment you know actually why don't we just go straight to that um you know the semiotics of zoom um it, as a side note, I've been kind of looking at real estate off and on for the past couple of years, and real estate brokers actually have the notion of a Zoom room. There's a part of the house that is being sold as the place that you do Zoom from. And it is now, and you know, if you look at things like, this is sort of 
blog post that you would write, Tyler. If you look at things like domestic architecture over the, over the past four or five centuries, you see how it reflects the economics at play, right? And the fact that there would be, you know, servants chambers in the attic or whatever. The fact that now we have a Zoom room is kind of representative of that fact. So why don't you share with us a little bit what you say in the book about Zoom and how, one of the things you mentioned is how kind of the Zoom vibe went from kind of accepting, right? Like you have kids screaming in the back and dogs and like domestic life is dragged into professional and like whatever, we accept it, to one where now, you know, there's like a very popular Zoom Room Raider account called at Room Raider that I follow and people get tens or eights and there's, you know, problems with their Zoom Room. Can you talk about the, the, Zoom, the Zoom setup? And, and, and to be clear, this isn't the context. The book isn't about Zoom rooms, right? But it's, it's about how do you evaluate, how do you evaluate t- talent through the sort of formalisms that we've arrived at, which is things like interviews, which you criticize and critique for a bunch of reasons. Um, but again, I, I found the Zoom thing particularly interesting because it goes beyond just, okay, what questions should or shouldn't you ask? It's how do you interpret this new virtualized self that you're evaluating for a job? I, and that's a question to either one of you. I don't know if I'm supposed to pick one, but it well, can be I was just speaking, so let's Daniel, you take a crack at it. Well, it was very interesting. I think over COVID, everyone went through a similar dynamic where there was kind of this cycle uh, that initially started with kind of embarrassment. You know, wait a minute, uh, my Zoom setup is revealing like the truths about my life. So I may not be as put together as I claim to be in the office. And suddenly Bill Gates is on Zoom, you know, with his crazy DSLR setup, uh, looking like he was preparing for this moment his entire life. And, <laughs> um, you know, then, of course, a lot of a lot of other people immediately started uh, getting their Zoom cameras. I, I actually think that there's a business uh, that was since acquired uh, called Elgato, um, that literally couldn't make enough of these little specialized adapters that would convert a DSLR into something you can plug into your computer. Um, And then actually found, interestingly, in the venture world, it very quickly became too much of a status symbol. Um, And, you know, a lot of the VCs, you know, definitely, I think, went all out on their Zoom setups. And, you know, the cycle reversed itself. Suddenly it was cool to be uh, you know, not that uh, formal about it. And, you know, you have those, you know, funny interviews of um, uh, of um, blanking on the name, the guy from uh, CAA in uh, Los Angeles taking, you know, CNBC calls while he's on a walking treadmill, barely holding up the camera properly. Um, but anyway, I mean, I, you know, I th- so I think the, the, the whole Zoom thing was effectively a giant fashion trend, you know, that we all went through. And I think the broader point is not to you know get too pedantic about that because what it means really changes over time as as does fashion. Um, but really, just that um, in in the context of an interview, I think we tend to really focus very much on the specific questions that we're asking, which I actually find reveal a fair fairly small amount of information and not on all of the other entropy being exposed kind of by the person. Um, and since the Question and response process in the interview can get, I think, extremely scripted for both sides. And actually, I think for both parties, pretty monotonous, um, if not done properly. You often, I think, can learn a little bit more, uh, you know, just understanding everything else around the interview. Uh, Background is certainly a part of it. um, But also, you know, we talk a a lot about just asking people casually what they do in their day-to-day life and how often that might be more revealing to the extent that you don't get a performative answer. Um, about, about, you know, uh, giving you a useful model uh, about predicting their actions, you know, if you hire them. Uh, and so I think it's a, you know, it's a, a broader kind of epigraph to, you know, just trying to pay attention to all the pieces of information that are being dropped in an interview that I think are arguably more important than 
you know, the person orating about their largest weakness, which they rehearsed at home the day before, which you're going to nod along and listen to and ultimately will result in, uh, you know, um, zero bytes being exchanged once you compress out all the fluff. Um, so Tyler, I, yeah, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but um, I think I would give a specific thing. example. A lot of the people I interview on Zoom, they either want to be writers or scientists and often they're teenagers and they live at home with their parents. I found on average, I prefer a really pretty crummy Zoom background because whatever the background is, it's usually designed by the parents. And if they look like they come from a wealthy family, well, that's fine. But I actually then downgrade a bit my estimate of their drive and determination. Uh, there was a fellow I interviewed from rural Peru, which is hardly an obvious place uh, for someone to, to do well coming out of. And his background was awful. It was just like a blank concrete wall. He was super smart. That made me all the more impressed. So that he got as far as he has gotten was due to his own efforts. But it depends on context. If it's people who know they're doing Zoom calls all the time, you'll apply a different standard. And just like that, Tyler, dozens of young people you know, brick up their Zoom rooms with a with concrete blocks in the back to impress you in their in their Zoom thing. I mean, that's sorry, not to be too 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 snarky about it, but you, you, I think one of the things your your book does is that you're you're obviously super critical, or I think you're a little bit dubious of conventional interview questions, but you do ask a list of other interesting interview questions, and one of them is what Daniel hinted at, which is like, what are you doing weekends? In other words, the the real person is revealed not in the interview questions themselves, which I think is what you're saying, Daniel, but rather in all the sort of more less scripted, less choreographed elements of the interview, like, well, what is the background? What are they doing on weekends? What are the scales that you practice? So in some sense, you're trying to do a non-interview interview in that you're sort of very programmatically and formulaically trying to get at that thing that's not supposed to be a thing. And of course, the moment you put it out there, of course, people are going to try gaming it by, by having prepared answers even to the unusual questions you have, I guess. Did you ever think about that, that in some sense you'd be giving away kind of your alpha? Because um, obviously in both of your cases, I mean, Daniel, in the case you've been involved with YC and your own investing, and Tyler, you, you also, I, I believe, run a fund that funds young, young entrepreneurs and, and young people doing things in the world. Did you ever fear that in some sense you'd be giving away your, your secrets in writing this book? I fear that a little, but I think the book is a broader framework that we can't possibly cover every case. It's a way of thinking. And if more talent evaluators out there learn that way of thinking, uh, wonderful. I'm not too worried about the interviewees gaming it because, in fact, if you understand the framework over time, you always have more good questions. Daniel? Yeah, you know, it's fun. Um, it's always, uh, uh, you know, a friend of mine uh, recently left uh, at uh, a, a position at a quant fund, uh, one of the very, very highly rated quant fund, and his non-compete was only six months. And I was kind of surprised by that. And he said, yeah, ultimately... Any secrets you have, the market learns in six months. So you're only, you know, the, the, the magic tricks here don't, don't really last that long. And it's really your ability to kind of learn at a meta level that matters. And, you know, I think interview questions are kind of like that too, the specific interview question. You know, like Peter Thiel's now, in, now useless interview question, I think is totally priced out. But um, if you, if the, the, the broader point of the book, I think, is the derivative of that, which is I think you have to ask something uncommon or unusual, um, I think, in order to to make it interesting, honestly, to both parties. I actually don't, as someone that has sat on the other side of the chair, as I'm sure we all have, it's not that pleasant if it's just a scripted thing over and over again. And 
And really, the, you know, the real point of the book is to get to a point in an interview where it's a conversation and not a scripted exchange of words. Um, and good, unique questions can definitely get you there. But, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure they'll uh, get priced into the market just like everything else. Yeah, it's funny. Like everybody else involved in this world, I've, I've probably interviewed at least dozens, possibly hundreds of people. Um, I mean, one of the things about working at these large tech companies is that recruitment, at least for the good ones, is obviously is a major focus. And so everyone who works there... Um, is sort of dragooned into constantly interviewing candidates. And every company, I mean, Facebook included, and I imagine it's the same out of the ones like Google and Apple, have a sort of script of what they consider to be like the platonic abstraction of their ideal employee. I mean, certainly Facebook had a whole playbook around what was the ideal product manager. There was five roles. You were interviewed one type of it. For some reason, I would be slotted in to to interview them for analytical ability and founder ability and kind of not social ability, which maybe says something more about me than, than about the candidates. <laughs> but in any case, um, and then I would always tend to ask some questions that were related to problems we were actually trying to solve because I found a lot of the Google brain teaser type questions to be completely pointless. And I, mean, I, I do think they, they, they do measure raw intelligence, but um, that may or may not be terribly relevant in, in an actual workaday context. And, and, and by the way, as a side thing, you get into that a lot, right? Like the actual value of intelligence. And it's funny, Tyler, you quoted somebody who I, I wouldn't think would be quoted in that regard, Mark Andreessen, as having written something that said, well, intelligence is important, but it's not so important, which is sort of the feel-good message we often get. But a lot of the research you discuss actually says the opposite. At the very highest end, and for certain roles, like inventor or CEO, intelligence actually does scale with productivity or at least earnings, which is the thing economists can measure. Can you talk about that a little bit, how it seems like there's this sort of like double gamma, like it's almost like a double derivative thing where in the highest end of the scale, intelligence matters more while other aspects like conscientiousness or whatever matter at the lower end of the intelligence scale. It's what we would call a convex function. Yeah, convex. Yeah. In positions like Mark's position, I, I really have not met one who is not super, super intelligent putting aside, you know, inherited wealth or inherited corporate positions. Uh, if you look at Magnus Carlson, you look at Steph Curry, not just in business, but virtually every area, people at the very top are super, super smart. But for most jobs, I think it's much closer to being a threshold effect. You need a certain level of smarts to do a particular job. And above that level, the correlation between intelligence and success is really not very strong. And if the person is noxious, being smarter can make them a negative. So smarts matter, but especially smart people overestimate how much smarts matter. And if you look at wage equations, smarts only predict wages to a, a very modest degree. Or you look at IQ tests for CEOs. They've done this in Sweden. The median CEO of a large Swedish corporation is at the 83rd percentile of smarts. Now, that's above average, but it's not like, wow, they're all geniuses. Okay. So I would say take smarts with a grain of salt. Well, but you, but you found that the impact of intelligence was different based on the role. I mean, you cited the fact Correct. that, for example, among doctors and lawyers, things like birth and education mattered way more than raw intelligence did. But, and, and you, but you did find a correlation that the, the more either more prominent or higher earning the CEO, the higher their, their intelligence actually was in that percentile ranking. So it still mattered, at, at least within that very elite avenue of, of CEO-ship. Yes, and again, in virtually any area, at the very, very top, I think smarts matter a great deal because the person has to be getting everything right. But it's also that energy matters a great deal. Conscientiousness following through matters a great deal. Everything matters a great deal to rise to the very, very top, <clears throat> not just smarts. I think that's a critical point. Yeah, and you cite the example of all things of John Le Carre doing journalism in Miami that I'm staring at, at by the way. I'm in one of these boxes in the sky downtown and staring at 
this sort of bizarre post-industrial monster that is downtown Miami. You mentioned that he had this, even though he was old, even though he was already famous and rich, he had this endless energy. I think you cite Mark as well as somebody who talks fast and eats fast. And as someone who's both talked and eaten with him, I can confirm that, in fact, he talks and eats very quickly. Um, he does, he seems to do everything very quickly. Um, okay. I mean, that, you know, that's perhaps not the most feel-good, inspiring message uh, around intelligence, Tyler. But which brings me to my next question, Tyler, which is your entire... A lot of the book and all of it, and, and again, I, I get why this is the focus, right? Because we're all in industries in which high stakes, high risk, high reward, um, you, you definitely want to avoid false negatives, right? Because you know, Daniel has been involved in, in Y Combinator. I went through Y Combinator. If you say no to the future Airbnb or if you don't offer a job to that hyperproductive employee, you're losing out on a lot, right? And in some sense, you kind of bias for false positives instead of false negatives of anything, at least if you're, if you're a VC. But... You know, the reality is that a lot of human productivity in the economy isn't such a high-stakes, high-tech gamble, right? It's, it's simply not the case that if you get the right hiring decision, you're going to find the next Steve Jobs or the, same Brian che- or the next Brian Chesky and make a gargantuan amount of money, right? Like most fields just aren't that exponential in terms of growth or return. So what, one thing that struck me about your book is that, again, you're, you're, you're definitely – you're basically trying to find the exact tuning parameters for the extreme of the distribution, which is super important because, again, at the extremes, you get something wrong and you miss out on a lot of the actual mass that's there. But a lot of the problems that face talent sifting in general – aren't that, right? So for example, in a public school, for example, they kind of have to accept everybody that comes in the door. Or in a, in a society with conscription, like in Israel, for example, the IDF has to more or less accept everybody that walks in the door, barring some you know, outliers of disabilities and whatnot. Do you feel that the talent problem, problem there is fundamentally different and that different mechanics would apply? I mean, have you thought about that end of the performance spectrum? This book is not just about the extremes. So to give an example, every year I'm given a research assistant, a graduate student, And over time, I can choose whom it is that I get. That's an act of individual judgment. It's not a CEO. It's it's a graduate student. But that person actually needs a lot of skills, including a good sense of how to manage me, when to call upon me, when to ask me questions, when to proceed with something on on his or her own judgment. Uh, It requires me to think who is actually good for this position. And that's the kind of individual act of judgment that our book covers. We mainly do not focus on being a large corporation and having to hire 7,000 people this year, right? You need a different book for that. But it's amazing at how many different parts of the economy, including in large corporations, you end up having to make individual acts of judgment. Any view on that, Daniel? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There is... um... I think there is, you know, obviously a variant of this book. Um, the closest to this that I've seen actually is Subway's uh, Guide to New Franchisees that you can find somewhere in the web. It's like an 800-page book, uh, and it's the kind of version of this book that's not focused on the extreme tale. But, um, you know, you just got to hire folks at Subway. What are you going to interview for? Um, and there you're not looking for someone to make the ultimate Subway sandwich, uh, you know, that will trend on TikTok. You just... Well, I kind of want someone that's going to, you know, slice the tomatoes and show up on time. And um, I think uh, that, that, you know, they, they obviously go through all the straightforward things. It's actually a relatively decent doc, probably much better than most interviewing and hiring books. Um, um, uh, but, but I think corporate America is somewhat decent at that. What, what I think, you know, hopefully the book can shed some light on uh, is really kind of farming for outliers, um, which I think exists in a fair amount of roles. Um, 
where the dynamic range of output, you know, between, um, you know, the best and the average is giant, you know, the median and the mean have a huge disparity between them, software engineering or marketing uh, or founders. Um, and I don't think we're doing a great job, uh, to be totally honest, at allocating the right projects and the right capital to the right people. Um, you know, I think there's this very interesting kind of societal question of why really is there only one Elon? Uh, take whatever view you want on Elon, Twitter acquisition, whatnot, but he's created a huge amount of good and seems to be a very efficient capital allocator. Um, but I don't think one is the right number uh, for the, you know, the amount of Elons we should have. Um, and when you keep on deriving why, 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 I do think a large portion of it is that, you know, we don't route resources to the right people. Uh, and, um, and that matters at most, obviously, these, you know, extreme ranges of output. Uh, and so, you know, hopefully, I think if the book can move, you know, the, the conversation one bit uh, in the right directions, the spillover effects, you know, sh should hopefully be um, very good and pleasant, uh, you know, for the centuries to come. But, you know, TBD on that. Um, I, I, but, you know, one of the reasons we decided to write this book in that, you know, original meeting uh, Tyler mentioned at a Chinese restaurant uh, in San Francisco is um, there's just not enough on this stuff. Uh, and so even if this spawns the creation of 15 other books on this topic, kind of like Freakonomics did to, you know, broader, I think, kind of popular economics, I think that'd be fantastic. Hmm, interesting. Um, you know, the impression I took away from the book was, was somewhat different, Daniel, Not, in the sense that I think we talk about this a lot in the U.S. In fact, I think one thing that strikes me about American business, like everything we've just said is kind of conditioned on the ability to actually select people, right? I mean, my original question as phrased was, what if you can't not hire somebody? In other words, what if you're actually, I mean, it's kind of similar to your subway example. What if basically you've got a labor force and you've got to make, you've got to do the best with, with what you've got, right? In other words, you've got to go to war with the army you've got, not the army you'd like to have. And in that case, the, the talent, it becomes less about selecting and picking out the needle in the haystack or the sort of golden hire. It becomes more of, well, how do you actually develop talent, right? I think of, for example, speaking of examples, um, it comes to mind, Dan, I mean, you're Israeli. I don't know if you, if you served in the IDF, but the IDF has that problem, right? And they basically have to take an entire country's labor force and figure out some place to slot them in. And they seem to be very good at it, right? And if you're of above average intelligence and ambition, you go to Unit 8200, which is like, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's sort of the officially like signals group, but it ends up being like a tech incubator for much of the Israeli military. And a lot of those people go on to actually found commercial startups of their own. Or you end up in the Galani Brigade, which is this very hard sort of infantry thing. Or there's this unit, which I find fascinating, that takes heavily autistic people and puts them basically looking at satellite imagery and try to figure out where Hamas, uh, you know, hides rockets because a lot of autistic people are very good at very detail-oriented work that you know, more neurotypical people would, would rapidly get bored of. And so they're faced with a challenge of like, well, actually, you, you can't not hire them, right? <laughs> they come, I mean, you can if there's something like, you know, they can't, literally can't walk or they're severely disabled, but if, if they're not, you basically have to accept them. And then the question becomes not, oh, which one do I pick, but how do I cultivate this person's talents in the best way? And I think there's something in the U.S. that I think maybe it's due to the immigrant mentality or maybe it's something else, but I think we're, you know, we're very comfortable with basically being super selective and saying, well, basically, you're just not good enough, right? And it, it's, it's weird. It's, it's, um, I think other, I think it's partially related to the America being an immigrant country that in some sense, there's always this reflex of, well, we're just going to import more talent or find more talent somewhere else. Many countries don't have that luxury, right? They have to figure out ways to actually develop native talent such that they can be globally competitive, right? And, you know, that immigrant thing, again, being American, it's often very positive thing. It feels very, you know, open and diverse and, and whatever, but taking a little bit less American patriotism sort of point of view, it's like, well, 
are Americans just like lazy and dumb that they have to import basically everyone who does all the work, either mental or physical, for their society, which often seen from the outside seems as if they have to do. And so, I, I, do, you, do you do you feel it's a conflict at all? I'm, I'm totally off base, and in fact. Um, the talent problem where it's like, well, we, we can't pick. We, we can't hoover up the world's brains. We have to make do with what we have. Do you think that's a dual of this problem or it's, it's not actually as far apart as, as I'm describing? I think we have too much credentialism <clears throat> and it's holding a lot of Americans back. Just a super simple example of how we are asleep at the wheel when it comes to talent. Recently, the state of Maryland ruled that for thousands of fairly menial state government jobs, you don't need a four-year college degree. To the best of my knowledge, they're the only state that has taken that action. Now, in the final analysis, for many of those jobs, you still might prefer people with college degrees, right? It is, on average, a positive signal. But just being willing to consider people who don't have the degree, who might be very smart or have a lot of initiative, or, you know, maybe it's a, a woman who is a single parent and didn't have the chance to go to college, but would be a great worker in those posts. So that's boosting the upward mobility of Americans. And I don't think there's anyone out there deeply committed to the view that all those Maryland state government jobs need a four-year college degree. It's just something that got written down, put into the rules. No one pulled it out. Most states still do it. There are just so many ways that look small, but add up to a very large pie that we could think more carefully about allocating talent at, at the superstar level, but even at very ordinary levels. Any thoughts, Daniel? Yeah, I mean, you know, you have this issue where credentialing is, I mean, essentially it's lowering the dimensionality and resolution of the individual, right? Um, which is super helpful um, to the interview, especially en masse. Um, but you, uh, it's not perfect compression. It's like, you know, wave file to MP3. You lose information in the process. And um, the, the, the compression sometimes results in a completely different sound, meaning the credential does not necessarily really predict talent that well. Um, every system, I think at some point naturally, how would you say cascades to credentialing because it's really the only way to get through, you know, things done with volume. Um, and so I think improving, you know, the American credentialing system, or at least trying to reset it a little bit, it would be helpful. The other really interesting thing that's happening now as a byproduct of the internet is credentials that are kind of proofs of work, not in a crypto sense, but, if you look at GitHub or YouTube or SoundCloud, it allows people that don't really have credentials to get credentials in a way that's, I think, much more meaningful than, you know, getting into an Ivy League school, um, because it's a true testament to their ability to do the labor. Uh, and I, I'm not exactly sure if Mr. Beast um, would have really gotten through the Hollywood, you know, you know, uh, machine. Um, he doesn't look, you know, particularly like Brad Pitt. Um, he's a bit crazy. He's loony. His ideas are kind of out there. Uh, and yet he's obviously able to exist in the world. And now I think would certainly, you know, I'm sure CAA would love to sign him somehow. So to me, one of the most optimistic things about the Internet is it does provide this kind of credit for some roles, not all like, um, you know, you certainly wouldn't want your anesthesiologist telling you that, you know, they're rated, you know, five stars on uh, on ZocDoc or Yelp and nothing else. But they didn't go to school. Um, so it doesn't work for all things. Um, but for, for a lot of different uh, types of tasks and labor, it does provide, I think, a much more pure credentialing system, which is based off of the individual's track record at whatever they're doing. Yeah, I mean, I think this 
I think both of you exp expressed some skepticism around credentialism, which I think is probably one of the many sort of or manifestations of our increasing disillusionment with institutions, right? Um, we no longer believe that the Ivy League degree actually means that you're smart, and there's a hundred different reasons why that's true, but we're trying to find for other touch points for it. I mean, fortunately, in the worlds that we tend to work in, like technology, there is kind of an objective standard of merit. Uh, as a piece of like self-revelation, I, I originally went into STEM not because I was particularly STEM-focused. I wasn't at all, actually. I was like the bookish literature kid. My mother was a librarian. I was not the science kid at all. But for a bunch of reasons that aren't worth going into, maybe I'm feeling a little nostalgic because I'm in my hometown called Miami here. Um, I, you know, I went to kind of a non-prestige college, and I felt I had to get some way out of it. And in the American, and what was obviously the American cognitive rat race, you had to do it through something that had some objective standard of merit, at which I could actually compete and win, and that was science, right? And it wasn't going to be the sort of social science or humanistic fields that would naturally kind of come to me. So I kind of forced myself to go into physics. Um, and then it, it kind of worked, I guess, um, in the sense that I went to, you know, doctoral programs and all these fancy universities because of science that I wouldn't have gone into or even tried to in, in the humanities. Um, so I, I guess there is some saving grace to tech, but again, in, <laughs> it's weird in so many fields, it's clear that you can do some things better than others. Like I, I'm thinking, for example, like, again, product management is a good example in that it's this kind of diffuse field. It's hard to define. There's as many definitions of it as there are companies that have the role. And yet it's hard to actually interview for it. Um, similar trading in, 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 on Wall Street. I worked in Wall Street. That was my first job out of college on a trading desk. And whether you're on the quant side or whether you're on the trading side, it's very difficult. Again, there's some people who can do it really well and some people who can do it very poorly. But it's not clear to me that you can actually even interview for it in, in any sort of sensible way. So is there any way to actually do sort of job selection that isn't interviewing? Like obviously like, you know, hire, consult to hire. It, have you thought about other ways beyond interviewing to actually pick people? Scouting. You want large numbers of people out there looking for people who want to work for you. So, you know, your own power sitting in the chair making decisions is highly limited, no matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how good a judge of talent you are. But if you have dozens or even hundreds of scouts looking for opportunities, uh, if you have a sense of who's a good scout and incentivize them properly, you will beat the market. So that's a huge part of talent selection. We have a whole chapter on that. Just get decentralized processes working in your favor. Yeah, no, I was, that was my next topic, Tyler, that, which is it's great that you touched on it because you have a whole thing on scouting, which is interesting. And um, for those who may not be aware, scouting isn't just used, for example, in sports or you open with the example of modeling in Brazil, which I thought was an interesting example. But even in the VC and tech world, I, th I think Daniel might correct me, but I think it was Sequoia that started the first sort of VC scout model. And the VC scout model was that you'd have people who are actually working in tech, like actual founders, not professional VCs per se, you'd give them a small amount of money. And I think either they'd invest their money in, and Sequoia would follow along or, or some other range. But basically, they were, in some sense, Shanghaiing some of their portfolio founders into their actual scouting process. Is, is that more or less right, Daniel? Actually, I've never been a scout, so actually, I don't know. Maybe you, maybe you, you know. You are um, a scout, Antonio. You're a scout for us right now. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Daniel. there's... To, to, I mean, to uh, it really depends, I guess, on how much you want to stretch to the tarp of the analogy. But of course, the most extreme example would be, um, you know, the old school venture capital funds of the 1960s that basically got money from limited partners to invest in, you know, digital equipment company or Fairchild Semiconductor. Those were effectively scouts. I mean, they have the 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 idea is the same idea. At the end of the day, you're you're given capital and you're supposed to look for people. Sequoia added maybe another derivative to that. Um, and, um, 
And of course, they had a kind of shared economic arrangement with Y Combinator for a couple of years um, and, and kind of viewed that, I think, broadly as a scouting program, too. So there's a lot of sense of uh, scouting, in, I think, in Silicon Valley. Um, I think you have to kind of be careful, though. It's interesting. It's a bit of a mixed bag. You know, in particular, in the venture case, you can learn the success and failure modes from it. Now it's, of course, extremely popular. We'll see how all that changes with rates going up. But obviously money was sloshing around and people were looking for anyone to deploy it. And so basically everyone kind of became a scout for a thing. And the challenge with, with that is in the scouting model, if the person doesn't really have skin in the game, the scout doesn't really have skin in the game, which doesn't need to be capital, but it needs to either be reputation or capital, I think. Um, they, they obviously, I think, will send things opportunistically, but, you, you know, you might find that the level of quality doesn't get that low. And in particular, you know, you end up with a lot of very energetic CEOs of extremely successful companies um, who don't really put the capital up to invest. I mean, it's not their business model. They're not investors. They're CEOs. Um, nor do they put up the reputation to invest. I mean, they're known as CEOs, like the thing they're, you know, they're going to walk in, uh, into a into a bar and strike up a conversation. Someone asks you what you do. They're not going to say I'm an investor in X, Y, and Z. They're going to say I run X, Y, and Z. And so in those situations, those scouting models, I think, you know, VCs use them as kind of information sources, um, but, but it doesn't actually, I think, work from a return on equity standpoint compared to other places you could deploy it to. Um, and I think pro- part of the issue there is there's many different issues as a psychometric fit of a founder versus an investor, but um, particular one, I think, is they have no skin in the game, which I think matters. Right. I found the single biggest thing I've done to help my talent selection is having written on the Internet every single day for 19 years. So that means some number of people know to come to me. And you can debate what kind of people are attracted to come to me. Uh, But that's enormous. If you just try to sit in a chair and pick the best people and wake up one day and do it, it's not going to go very well. You know, who's in your net? Who, who are your soft social connections? Whom will they bring to you? Right. I mean, I think you're pretty transparent, Tyler, that, you, that your writing is a form of lead generation, which takes me to one of my favorite aphorisms, which is everything is an ad network. You just don't realize it. And in some sense, your, your blog, which I'm a subscriber to, is an ad network. But I remember one of the scenes in the book, which I felt very envious of. I, I'm guessing it was probably written by Daniel, because when you're talking, it's funny, the book is co-written. And I guess unless someone is speaking in the third person, when you're writing about each other, I, I always assume it was the other author talking about that person. Maybe you can correct me. But the, the passage I'm thinking of is the scene of Tyler late at night, still writing away he might have or lack of focus. And I just felt so envious of your ability to do that, Tyler. I, I, now I finally understand why I get an email in my inbox every morning from you, <laughs> how you manage to keep up that writing discipline. Um, so, Tyler, um, unless you have something else to comment on that, I think I can't help the temptation, Tyler, as a longtime listener, but I'm going to have to turn the tables and hit you with an underrated, uh, overrated series. Are, are, is that okay, Tyler? Is that something you're I'm willing ready. to subject yourself to? I'm very um, ready. Are you okay? And and Daniel, by the way, I don't I don't mean to exclude you from this. In fact, not at all. If I were in your shoes, I'd be doing the same. Please, <laughs> please go ahead. And... <laughs> um, okay, um, I, I'm not as merciless as Tyler. I can't quite hit you like a machine gun with one after the other because I feel because if you answer, I'm, I'm I know I'm going to follow up. I'm too chatty. I'm going to follow up with a question. So it may not be quite the ratatat thing that you know Tyler usually gets, but. Given where I okay, underrated or overrated, either one either one of you jump in, or I can call on each of you. Whatever, overrated or underrated. Miami, go. 
Miami is way underrated by the people who are not there. It's modestly overrated by the people who are there. So I don't think it will be the next tech center. I do think it's already the sort of economic and social capital of Latin America. But the value of being the economic and social capital of Latin America is somewhat wavering, given problems in Peru, Brazil, and other places. It's a wonderful place to live. The food, I think, actually was better in the 1990s. Fantastic for walking. I love the architecture, the diversity. One of the best American cities to drive around. But when I hear Miami boosterism from those who have moved there, I just tend to think they're going a bit far with it. Daniel? I'm not going to give a better answer than you. Let's try another one. Go ahead. <laughs> can, can I just comment? Because people ask me all the time, because I'm from here, if I buy the Miami story. So I'm going to answer my question, which I know sounds a little bit self-absorbed. But I, I get the question all the time. So let me just answer it once and for all. I tend to agree with Tyler. It is the social, economic, and cultural capital of Latin America. It has been for a while. And so that role, fulfilling that role, I think, is not surprising at all. In fact, that's kind of its destiny. The builder side of it, as much as I love my tech friends and I'm, I'm totally rooting for them, the builder culture is definitely not as strong in Miami. And so I think there's definitely kind of a hill to climb there. But you know what? San Francisco didn't used to be part of Silicon Valley, and it became what it became. And uh, Tel Aviv also wasn't a startup hub, and it became one. And it's actually very similar to Miami in many ways. So I'm definitely rooting for them, but that's the one challenge I see. I, I, I do wonder if it can actually become a tech builder hub in that way. Okay, next one. Um, now, now we're really getting to it. Um, Judaism, overrated or underrated? I'll go first to you Daniel, because I know you came from a Jewish background. Um, is underrated or overrated? Um, I think overrated in the sense that uh, I don't, I mean, Jewish people, to, to my limited knowledge, I grew up Orthodox, do not necessarily want to become underrated on a podcast to attract more Jewish people. Um, we, as a religion, aren't necessarily looking to convert, very much embrace the converted, but don't overtly try to grow our users by attracting more. Um, we're pretty skittish, I think, when it comes to that, and it grow most of our user base organically, from, from uh, what I was told. And so I will say, in an attempt to kind of stay under the radar, quote, unquote, <laughs> I will say overrated. Tyler, what about you? My wife, daughter, and co-author are Jewish, so I must think it's underrated. <laughs> so as, as someone who is in the process of, of converting, I will say, Daniel, that some, some of the denominations, not Orthodox, I wouldn't say actively try to convert, but they're definitely open to the... They don't do the rabbi refuses you three times thing that you sort of expect. They're actually very open. Um, and now, if I think you're at the point of the conversion where you even know that number and that it's three times, you're welcomed in. But um, <laughs> the issue is that uh, I think when you have you know, the aesthetics of promoting uh, you know, Bitcoin in an Elon Musk tw Twitter reply to your religion, you tend to devalue the customer base a little bit. Yeah, I mean... Uh, to, to your point about not exactly proselytizing, I've often joked that um, Christianity is Judaism with product market fit and a growth team, right? <laughs> so yes. the, re the reverse of that is Judaism isn't for everybody, and there's definitely not a growth team. <laughs> I mean, there's a, it's a different kind of growth team, but it's very much organic growth and not acquired. Yeah, and, and by organic, we mean I have three Jewish kids, and so I finally have to convert. That's, <laughs> that, that's, that's one inbound channel of conversion. Okay, um, third topic... Overrated or underrated, and as you can tell, I'm pulling no punches here, the Ukrainian cause, the by which Ukrainian, I mean, yeah. The but, Ukrainian cause is underrated by nations such as Brazil and India that don't seem to give a damn about it or maybe are indifferent. And I think they don't imagine Russia taking over significant parts of Eastern Europe as a problem for them, though I believe it is. 
that said, you know, in America right now, today, at least before Roe v. Wade resurfaced, Ukraine was what Mark Andreessen calls the current thing. And I don't feel many people understood it very well or had ever been to Ukraine or had ever spoken with Ukrainians. So kind of by by liberal Americans on Twitter, overrated, but by most of the world, still way underrated. Daniel? Yeah, I mean, I'm not uh, as well studied enough, especially as you. I guess you were there uh, on the topic. Uh, It seems... Like what's going to happen, you know, it's interesting to, to, to look at. There was this interesting chart of the H1N1 uh, pandemic or epidemic in Japan a couple of years ago. And it was a chart of deaths over news articles. And the chart shows exactly what we'd expect it, which is a spike in news articles, a spike in death. And then news articles gradually go down while deaths slowly climb. And we're kind of watching the same thing now happen with COVID. And so you, you tend to get this mismatch or kind of sine and cosine wave of like, where the moral panic is versus what you actually need to worry about. And so it might be overrated like this week, but I imagine actually a couple of months from now, it'll become extremely underrated because it won't be in the news cycle because it won't be interesting. And that's when I think you'd want more people to pay attention to it. But, you know, such is the game when, when you're playing for eyeballs um, is that you end up with these, you know, in market inefficiencies. Interesting. Yeah, just to comment on myself, as Tyler said, I have a, a very brief story with Ukraine myself. And in fact, in all of two hours, I am going in front of a crowd and debating Glenn Greenwald about Ukraine. And he and I, I'm sure, will very much not agree about Ukraine. Um, so to your point about Mark and Dreesen, Tyler, I mean, I think I, I know Mark pretty well also, as, as well as you do, I suspect. And I think, you know, I, I think the world of him, I think he's right about almost everything except Ukraine, actually. And um, the current thing formulation of Ukraine, I just find kind of horrifying for a couple of reasons. One, I don't think it's actually true. Like, I don't think Ukraine is actually the current thing, right? My definition of current thing is if people get fired for not supporting it, which is something I know something about, right? There are definitely things in the world that are current things that you absolutely have to go along with and that it's the whole Havel's greengrocer, um, you know, revealed preferences formulation going on. I don't think Ukraine is that because, again, Glenn Greenwald, good example. You can sit there and howl about all you want and you don't really lose anything. So I, I don't think it's a current thing. The other thing I think is I, I do think current things are real. So that part of, of Mark's theory, I think, is very real. But I think there's a certain nihilism to the current thing that, that implies that it's a moral panic, that that current thing doesn't really exist in some sense. While in the case of Ukraine, it very much does exist. And you have 10 million refugees, thousands of, of civilian and military casualties, on and on and on. So in any case, just to comment there on the Ukraine thing, I think it's, in my opinion, just to answer my own question, I think it's underrated even now. But I think Daniel's correct that it's going to be even more underrated going forward, which I think is a, is a tragedy. But that's a, I'll save that for the, for the Glenn conversation. Okay. Next thing, and this is also very topical, underrated or overrated, Web3. <laughs> Daniel, you first, because you're closest to tech. I, I'll confess that I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty close to tech in like Web2 technology, sorry for kind of being ancient. I, I have a lot of struggles with Web3, and I think the typical answer of me would be to say that it's overrated. Um, I think one way, one interesting way it could be underrated uh, is a very simplistic way of reasoning about this, um, it's, uh, which is take all of your in, you know, intellectually cute arguments about why it's overrated and whatever, this can't work, protocols can't move fast enough, and put all that aside and just say, there's a lot of people working on it. And, um, and all of those people are high IQ and very young and want to start a country and they're pouring their heart and soul into this. So it's just not going to go anywhere. And price is going to move up and down. But if you could live in a zoomed out chart, 
the movements of this week, as you know, shocking as they are to everyone, really don't matter. Uh, and so it remains underrated just because that's where the attention uh, of, of a lot of the youth, quote-unquote youth, is. Uh, and I think historically, if you're to backtest against that, there's some exceptions to it. Like, you know, Colt Fusion was a huge fad uh, that just totally disappeared. But for the most part, it backtests well. So I think you kind of have to respect it and underrate it as a result. I would second Daniel's comments and also point out at least 95% of Americans couldn't even tell you what it is. And most PhD economists couldn't tell you what it is. So it has to be underrated in that regard. Yeah, that's right. Um, It's funny. I I was on the Rogan show a few weeks ago, and he actually asked me to define it, which is horrible because I don't consider myself a a Web3 native, but I I think I managed to pass muster with it. So I think, Tyler, you're right that most people wouldn't even recognize the term, much less be able to define it. But to Daniel, I think my view is basically Daniel's view, which is there's so many smart people and so much money chasing it. If it lives up to even a tenth of the promise, it's still going to be a huge deal, right? Whatever it actually evolves into. And so therefore, it's still worth paying attention into. And so anyhow, that's how I justify spending time on it. So I think, I think we're all in agreement there. Um, I like how I- We all act- believe in talent, you could say, right? Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, the more I look into Web3, the more I see smart people and money chasing one thing. It's like, okay, you've, you've got to go in that direction. It's just not going to end up in nothing. Okay, next, next underrated, overrated- I know a little bit, uh, feel free to opt out, the SAT and standardized testing. It depends what you are comparing it to. In current debates, I very strongly favor the use of standardized testing at virtually all levels of education. That said, it is not my absolute ideal system. And when I evaluate people individually, personally, I don't ask them what their scores were or are. You can debate how legal is that. It depends on the context. But I'm not sitting there wondering. I would much rather read something they actually have written. And I don't mean an essay they spent four months on. I mean something they just sat down and wrote like a blog post. So in an ideal sense, it's maybe a little overrated. But in current debates, I'm just 110% on the side of standardized test scores. They're an engine of upward mobility for really smart kids who went to bad schools. Any of you, Daniel? I'm not going to have a smart one. I never took the SAT, but um, <laughs> I, 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 t- I took, you know, Israel's battery of psychometric tests as a teenager. Um, and uh, I guess I guess that what I liked about that, that I think is a bit different from the SAT system is, um, and it's changing, unfortunately, over time in Israel, but at least when I took it, there was no preparation, which I think is a bit better um, because I think you really get a, a bit more of a pure test that way than, you know, today with the SAT prep, from my understanding, I mean, there's a whole system of schools to prepare for, prepare you for it, and you know. Um, whereas you can take the psychometric test. Uh, when I took it in Israel, I mean, you just show up, and you just look at shapes, and you rotate them, and that's it. Um, and uh, anyway, I think it's a bit more of a pure system, solving a bit of a different problem. But uh, I do wish more tests could be like that, and I think that would remove a lot of the, you know, um, angst I imagine teenagers feel, you know, approaching these tests. Um, so. So it was, it was actual shape rotation, Daniel. <laughs> Where's Rune? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think he has a nice essay where he, he does manage. It's not necessarily the Israeli psychometrics in particular, but Raven's progressive matrices, which is a very popular IQ test, I think, developed in the 30s, Tyler would know for sure, uh, is basically moving shapes inside your head. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I would be pro-SAT. I was, like I mentioned, I was one of these kids who went to a non-procedures college, and so taking the SAT or the GRE was way, one way to get out of it. And it's, it's odd that it's actually being trumpeted as this sort of 
engine for inequality when in fact it was as as i'm sure tyler and daniel know um it was actually well it was not created as that but it was event, it was adopted by harvard as a way to actually expand their pool of applicants and actually find the overlooked talent like you describe in your book right and now it's seen as an actual engine for inequality which seems to be darkly ironic um as a thing um okay last one and then i think we might have some questions if you guys are open for it sometimes we get caller questions that's the joy of 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 live audio so one last overrated underrated um i'm only asking this daniel because i i think we talked at some point in the distant past that you were doing uh dafyomi and and reading some jewish texts um religious metaphysics by by which i mean or just metaphysics more broadly but by which i mean a non-empirical form you know forms of reasoning that even stem from a religious tradition um be they of whatever religion you know overrated or underrated Tyler. I would say studying metaphysics when you're young is a very high value. It expands your horizon, helps you think speculatively, enables you to see beyond yourself and take on larger missions and causes. But I feel it has very rapidly diminishing returns past some point. And most people older than, say, 37 shouldn't be spending much time on it. So age dependent. Daniel? You know, I think one of the things we learned over the course of 2020 and 2021 is that oh, a lot of people knew this already previously, but um, truth is is uh, more of a consensus design than it is absolute. And not to get too philosophical or Girardian or whatnot about this. Um, and so, but anyway, if you have that definition of what it is true actually moves over time, you know, studying things that are totally out there, I think, makes sense. And, and um Many of our, um, I forget if it was Da Vinci or someone else during his time. I mean, these guys studied alchemy as a science. Uh, and so um, I think it kind of makes sense to have a fairly flexible and loose view uh, when, when studying these abstract concepts. Yeah, I tend to agree. And I tend to agree with Tyler that I think it's actually somewhat age limited. I think religious study is actually probably good. I mean, Dan, you might have a view on this at, when you're young and probably less useful when you're older. I mean, it's part of the reason for my conversion because I wanted my kids to actually be raised in some religious tradition. I have this odd belief that religion is kind of like chicken pox. You have to get a case of it when you're young. Otherwise, you're going to get this horrible case of it later when you're in adulthood and your immune system isn't prepared for it. And I think it also lets you recognize religious thinking. I think one of the problems in our current discourse is that everything is so empirically grounded. Everyone needs to have a study that they don't recognize religious thinking when they see it. And I think an actual firm grounding and actual religious thinking lets you kind of recognize it and, and realize when you've kind of gone off the farm from pure empiricism. But that, that maybe is just a bias of mine, having been raised Catholic and now studying to, to convert to Judaism. Um, but I, I, think it, I do think it has a value that often goes overlooked in our very sort of science-y society. I don't know, if Daniel, if you wanted to have more to say about that or, or Tyler. Yeah, I mean, I, I look... Uh... I uh, spent my years growing up uh, in Orthodox Israel and, ver and very much appreciated. I, I don't regret a minute of it. The older you get, I think the higher the return to reading and studying history. But to return to your Judaism question, the wonderful thing about the Hebrew Bible is that it has both incredible metaphysics and incredible history. And I would stress that the Hebrew Bible is extremely underrated that most people either don't read it or they read it in a Sunday school kind of manner where they don't actually absorb what's in it. Yeah, I agree. It's actually worth reading. Um, one of the great things about sort of Jewish life, of course, is that you read the entire Torah every weekend, a different parshat um, every weekend. And so that week is typified by the lessons of that, of that, 
of that particular reading. And at the end of the liturgical year, of course, you re-roll the entire Torah scroll and begin again at the beginning, signifying that the learning sort of never ends. And so I, I tend to agree with you, Tyler, that it's one of these books that you can study your, your entire life. Okay, I'll shut up there since we have five minutes left, and I'm guessing you might have hard stops. I see that Gil has been waiting patiently in the caller queue for a long time. Let me bring him up and uh, have Gil ask us a question. Gil, you are on if you're still there. Thank you for waiting so patiently. We might have lost Gil. Or Gil, maybe you don't know the mute button's on the lower right. Oh, yeah. He, he, he was literally there before any of the guests actually showed up. Um, okay. Since he isn't alive, I will have Austin come up and ask a question. Austin, you're on. Oh, hey, guys. Uh, yeah, great. Uh, great um, session. I guess my question would be... Uh... I think you guys have asked questions of uh, people you interview about like what you uh, what they do on the weekends. Just curious about maybe the best answer you guys have heard. And also, uh, did you invest money in whatever venture uh, or whatever the reason was for the interview? Thanks. Personally, I would say I, I wouldn't ask directly, what do you do on the weekends? It feels too intrusive to me. That said, I want to know what they do on the weekends. So I would just try to get them talking about what they're interested in. That seems to me less threatening. And if you ask about the weekends, they're going to lie anyway. So I would take an indirect route there. And uh, you want them to have interests that are unusual and weird and maybe somewhat obsessive and, and reflect something about themselves. I don't think you should obsess necessarily over exactly what the particular thing is that they do. It's how they think about it. I think that sounds right. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine, Tyler, like in the standard interview rubric of all these big companies, I, I imagine asking about the weekend is probably pretty strongly prohibited. <laughs> but I can see what you're getting at, which is what is the real person? What do you do on the weekends? In some sense, you're defined by, by your leisure activities, not your work activities. Um, okay, thanks, Austin. I don't see, I'm shocked. I'm shocked that we have such a large crowd and nobody else is coming up and asking a question. Um, huh. I have a question for you, Antonio. What are your open browser tabs right now? <laughs> oh, right. That's one of your, you know, <laughs> Tyler, it's a bad time to ask it because in order to not distract myself during these interviews, I close almost all of them. You know what I have open? I have open your book and Twitter where I posted about this. That's what I have open. But that's because I'm in the zone. Um, You're hired. <laughs> Normally, in fact, I have so many browser tabs open, I had to upgrade my Mac. The MacBook Air can't handle my Chrome usage. And so I, I, I went up to the MacBook Pro 14-inch just because it has the chip and memory to handle me with 50 Chrome tabs open. And so it would be a very long laundry list to go through on a typical day, Tyler. <laughs> I'm afraid. Um, cool. Well, you know, we're almost right at the end of it. Um, thanks again for coming on, Tyler and Daniel. Um, Two people that I've kind of known off and on in various forms for a while. I'm glad that we all got together to, to, to chat. Um, and thanks for writing this book, Talent, which I, I heartily recommend, by the way. Um, out today, available where all fine books are sold. Oh, wait, we have Gabby. You know what? Let's take one more call since we've got two minutes. If we can maybe keep it short, Gabby. Thanks. Go ahead, Gabby. Yeah. Um, do you have a best chapter of the book? I know it's arriving today for me for my belated birthday gift. I wanted to hear if you guys had any... Uh... What's your number one chapter? Antonio, that's a question for you. We don't pick children. <laughs> um, wow, you sounded like PG saying that, Daniel. <laughs> we, we don't have favorite startups, but of course you do. Um, 
Let's see. Uh, I mean, the one about the Zoom background totally flipped me out because, of course, it addressed one of my neuroses. But that's a very personal reaction. Um, you know, one that we didn't talk about, and that it's probably a little bit too late to bring up, but I, I thought it was very brave of you to bring up the women and minorities are still undervalued question, which is just a minefield I wouldn't even get close to, much less sprint into like you did. <laughs> and it's probably a little bit too late in the hour to get into to, into the details of it. But, um, well, we have one minute. Um I, I want to attempt to summarize what is a very or mischaracterize what are very subtle arguments about how do you accommodate women minorities in a corporate workforce? Because I, I think a lot of the points are worth reading. Um, I, I do wonder, what do you think more broadly about the culture problem? One of the things you mentioned, for example, is that non-Westerners or like non-WASPs basically take a very formal take on interviews and come very formally. I imagine they dress in suits and all the rest of it. And, you know, there's kind of an impedance mismatch between their culture and your culture. Or I think, of, for example, when Intel opened an office in Haifa, they had to train the American workers how to deal with like Israeli work culture, which tends to be a little bit more intense and confrontational than standard American thing. Do, do you think this is just going to be a problem as the world gets more internationalized in which we have these cultural collisions? And how do we keep it from like squashing a lot of this cultural diversity. Cause I'm thinking I went out for coffee in Miami like an hour ago and it is completely different. Like literally meeting somebody in Miami is like three HR violations in an American company. Um, I know it's a big ask, but I'm curious if you thought about how do you deal with these cultural collisions, not just for minorities and women, just in general in the, in the American workplace. There's no simple single answer. This issue will become more important. I would just advise if you at all can try to travel to more other countries so you have some connection points with people. Don't pretend you understand their culture, but have some interest in it that's greater than zero. That sounds, I was going to say travel. That sounds like perfect advice and a good note to end on. Great, indeed. Uh, well, thank you, Gabby, for the question. And uh, thanks again, Tyler and Daniel. The book is Talent out today. Highly recommend it. Absolutely go out and read it. And uh, thanks again, guys. This will be out um, where all fine podcasts are downloaded uh, very soon. Thank you, thanks AGM. Again. All right. Thank you, Thanks for having us. Uh, no, thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Tyler. Bye. Bye. Bye.